Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Central Connecticut State University history professor Leah Glazer tells the story of how Samuel Colt sought mining riches in the Arizona Territory without setting foot west of the Mississippi. In 2011, interestingly enough, the Arizona legislature voted to make the Colt Single Action Revolver the state's official firearm. In spite of the fact that Connecticut is actually the home of Colt Manufacturing Company for more than 150 years. But three years later, Congress authorized the establishment of the Coltsville National Historical Park in Hartford, Connecticut to acknowledge the factory's national industrial significance. The primary goal of this park is to help explain how Northeastern manufacturing helped fuel the country's Western expansion. Now, most people understand the relationship between pistols and the 19th century settlement of the West and the American Southwest, which is, of course, why Arizona has it as its state gun. (laughs) But but Hartford businessman Sam Colt's influence on pre-Civil War Arizona history extends beyond the promotion of his firearms, although that was involved, and predates the 1873 introduction of the Peacemaker, otherwise known as, quote-unquote, the gun that won the West. Colt was born in Hartford in 1814. He was an inventor, but also an opportunist, patenting his first revolver in 1836 during the Texas Revolution. And since the 1850s, his factory was built in 1855. His signature firearms became synonymous with the so-called winning of the West. But at the same time, he became actively involved in efforts to explore and exploit the rich mineral resources of southern Arizona, even before the Civil War. Even as he was sort of investing his money in the development of the West, he was also promoting his guns. He hired the painter George Catlin, who's also responsible for encouraging the West to put his guns in his paintings so that people would continue to see cult associated with Western expansion. In the mid-19th century, America offered bright prospects for wealthy men to become even richer as the nation rapidly expanded westward. And in the politically turbulent 1850s, remember this is just on the eve of the Civil War, Colt invested large sums of cash to support American mining interests and employed aggressive business tactics to keep early Arizona economically and politically stable and his investments profitable. This is just one of many connections that citizens of Connecticut have in the West, as the winter Connecticut Explored edition shows in this lecture series. But this one was not as obvious to me as a lot of the others. A bit about me as I approach this topic. I received my master's in 1996 and my PhD from Arizona State University in 2002. I lived there for eight years, learning an awful lot about state and local history, including a lot about the Arizona economy. But to be honest, I was more focused on 20th century urbanization and natural resource use and not much interested in firearms or any of the Wild West tales. So I was completely unaware of Colt's history with the state 
Fast forward many years, a CCSU undergraduate in my American West course in Connecticut, Nicholas Thomas, while working on a paper for another class, came up to me and said that in Sam Colt's papers in the State Library, he found a folder marked Arizona, and it was filled with, with letters of correspondence between this and a mining company and something about statehood, and he thought there was a story there. So Nick was really into the history of Colt and firearms, unlike me, and I knew a lot about Arizona. So I offered to co-author uh, um, an article with him, thinking you know it would help sort of get him, give him an opportunity and, and um, offer an, uh, something for publication. I knew the editorial people at the Journal of Arizona History, so it seemed like a likely venture. It was a struggle to come up with a thesis from this folder of letters, but what we found as eventually was that this was not much of a success story to tell in terms of his involvement in a mining venture, which other historians have barely mentioned him as a player. But we did find that he was heavily involved in what was essentially a failed mine, and he, that he saw Arizona as a long-term investment in both silver and in a gun market. He was essentially speculating on Western expansion, and even though the mine wasn't successful, he helped him and the mine and the political activity involved in it help lay the groundwork to establish Arizona territory. Eastern investment in American Western frontier was not unique to Colt, I must emphasize. The West is full of stories of Eastern investors. Almost all of them were themselves migrants, though, where Colt himself never traveled to Arizona due to business commitments and poor health. In his classic work, Colony and Empire, historian William Robbins emphasized the influence of those with surplus capital on the Western region's development over that of the rugged mountain men, etc. Eastern capitalists, Robbins argues, were the ones who invested in infrastructure like the railroad, and he argues that mining was one of the most important industries in the West. Robbins stresses that these capitalists wanted trade with and resources from Mexico. Rachel St. John talks about how capitalistic ventures like Colt was joined by gold rush refugees mounting expeditions, these mining entrepreneurs that pushed for a more open southern border, pushed that border even more southward. We also had a lot of military officers left over from the Mexican War who were looking for something to do and looking for a way to get rich and exploit this sort of new territory. And historically, this has been something that citizens of the United States have always had the expectation that the government and its powers, protections, and resources would follow them beyond the nation's borders. The U.S. did so into Louisiana Territory, and um, same thing happened with Oregon Territory. Americans went first, they went into Texas, and then the government followed. In this case, they were continuing a centuries-long search for Reports of mineral wealth had proliferated in this region since Coronado traveled through the present-day Southwest from 1540 to 1541. About the time of Lewis and Clark, adventurer Zebulon Pike also took command from Thomas Jefferson in an 1810 expedition, went out to explore what is now the American Southwest. His report about what was there sent many Americans scrambling in what was only nominally Spanish territory, this region being so um, distant from the New Spain Center and therefore difficult for them to secure politically and economically. Mexico City had the same problem after the Mexican War in 1821. The topography and the distance made it a very difficult place to prioritize, so it was not heavily settled. There was not a lot of infrastructure in place. Once Mexico did achieve independence in 1821, Americans began making their way down. And by the 1840s, the region was already a, way, a major, major trade way station. And the, so the economic 
promise of that area was trade, actually, and not, not mineral mining. With the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ending the Mexican War in 1848, all the whole like top third of Mexico became the United States. The Mexican War created what we now know as the southern border, but it was not the current one. It went along the river, which was a more natural border. But in her book on the history of the U.S. border, historian Rachel St. John explains that between 1851 and 1853, when they tried to kind of map that border, it was much easier to draw this border on a map than it was to actually uh, stake it in reality between the physical assaults from Native American tribes and the political and environmental challenges. Part of the reason for this was that in addition to being economically and politically valuable, the region was also homeland to Mexicans, but it was also more deeply rooted in na to Native Americans, who included the Apache, the Tejana Autumn, the Akamild Autumn, the Yaqui, the Maricopa, the Yumas. But this fact made it impossible for the Boundary Commission to mark and map a line. And that treaty, which stipulated that the U.S. would control Indian raids, meant nothing to tribes like the Apache. The local Apaches first welcomed the U.S. military as allies against Mexicans, but eventually they too turned hostile toward the American presence as that grew and the U.S. expanded its southern border further into Mexican lands. Secretary of War and future president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, had actually been advocating a transcontinental railroad across the southern route. The original border did not include that area. So under pressure from eastern investors, the U.S. government renegotiated the border. They bought the Gadsden Purchase uh, for $10 million just so they could get a southern railroad, so they could get what was considered lots of silver mining opportunities here, and because this was such a heavy trade area. Thus, pushed by railroad speculators to encourage trade with Mexico, the railroad people were some of the biggest advocators of establishing political stability in this area. But all of that ends up being delayed until 1881. There are no railroads through this area. Riding high on the optimism of the 1850s gold rush, however, New Mexico territory soon attracted those interested in that mineral wealth. Following the gold rush, of course, the largest concentration of, of population and the largest known silver deposits lay in this little strip of the Gadsden Purchase. Here in this area, Mexicans dominated the social, cultural, and political life. Americans rarely ventured into this area, except for a few military officers hoping to profit from mineral resources in the newly acquired territory. The region's topography was really difficult. The Sonoran Desert and the Chiricahua Mountains were hot, dry, isolated, sparsely settled, unfriendly to agriculture, and controlled by the Apaches. Those of you familiar with these tales know that Geronimo was able to evade capture in those Chiricahuas for years and years. This is not an easy place to navigate if you're not familiar with it. But despite all these drawbacks, the promise of wealth and commerce prompted opportunistic Americans as early as 1856, one year after Colt started his factory, to lobby for the separation of Arizona from New Mexico territory. The first American troops arrived at this place called Fort Buchanan in July of 1857 to try to stabilize the area. Situated in an unhealthy and indefensible location, the fort nonetheless attracted settlement, agriculture, and mining. Corns and beans grown by the local Akamal Odom, also known as the Pima Indians, partly sustained the first settlers. Sonoran Mexicans and the Tejana Autumn, formerly known as the Papago, 
who were willing to work for the mines for low wages outnumbered the American and European newcomers looking for wealth in the growing industrial economy. Amidst this background, Americans incorporated a mining company. For a century or more, Spanish and Mexican miners had attempted to extract silver near Tubac on the Santa Cruz River in the shadows of those Santa Rita Mountains. Following 1848, Kentucky native Charles DeBrill Poston, considered the founder and father of Arizona, joined an expedition with German engineer Hermann Ehrenberg to investigate the Gadsden Purchase. In his book, History of Arizona, Thomas Farish mentions that the Texas and Pacific Railroad Company gave Poston and Ehrenberg $100,000 to open mines in the new territory. And historian Mario de Blasio concluded that they received the money in about 1856 when Major Samuel Heitzelman introduced Poston to Cincinnati newspaper publishers Thomas and William Wrightson, who were interested in building a railroad through the Southwest. And those newspapers, of course, would advocate the necessity of the railroad. Born in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and having devoted his life to the military, Samuel Heitzelman arrived in the Southwest in 1850 to take command of the recently established Fort Yuma at the confluence of the Colorado and Gila Rivers. While there, he invested in transportation and real estate ventures. But his primary concern was promoting a Southern Railroad through Arizona to California. He saw economic opportunity also in exploiting the region's mineral wealth, and he and others actively lobbied to make Arizona a territory separate from New Mexico and to pursue statehood so that they could have all of the benefits of and, and resources of the American government behind them. But fears about the South's plans to extend slavery in the Western territories prevented any real progress. Amidst a national economic crisis in 1857, Heitzelman and his optimistic Midwestern capitalists incorporated the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company in Cincinnati, Ohio, as a joint venture stock company to take over abandoned Mexican silver mines and purchase land for American settlement. Its ties with railroad promotion were obvious in the selection of San Diego freighter William Conklin, an agent with the Texas Pacific Railroad Company, as secretary. The company hired more German engineers and geologists to supervise mostly the Mexican laborers who worked more than 80 mines. Poston and Ehrenberg established their headquarters at an abandoned Tubac Presidio and purchased a 17,000-acre ranch nearby. Unfortunately, these optimistic pioneers greatly underestimated the political and cultural tensions that the American presence in southern Arizona would produce. Beset by Indian attacks, insufficient food, and inadequate technology, they lobbied continuously for funding, military protection, and political resources. Involvement in the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company drained Heitzelman's finances and caused him to neglect his military duties. Heitzelman blamed Poston for trying to manage too many mines at once without the sufficient resources to overcome primitive transportation and all of the conflicts with the Mexican laborers. Newspaper editors with a direct financial stake in the company's success joined the mine owners and managers in pleading for more military protection. In the meantime, stockholders refused to provide additional funds until Poston and his partners produced better results. Heinzelman tried to tap fellow military officers and friends for more money with little success. Intrigued by the possibilities of the new Western territories and likewise ignorant of the on-the-ground challenges, America's foremost firearms manufacturer turned his attention to Arizona. 
By the late 1850s, Sam Colt was in contact with people like Sylvester Mallory, whose glowing reports touted the mineral resources surrounding Tubac. Mallory, who had also quit the Army to pursue his mining interests, persuaded Heinzelman to join him in lobbying Washington to create a Southern Arizona Territory. Despite their common interests, the two men disliked one another and would eventually compete for investors. Major William Chapman, a West Point schoolmate of Heinzelman with mining interests in Mexico, introduced Heinzelman to Samuel Colt in 1857 at his Hartford home in Armsmere. Sam Colt considered the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company a worthwhile investment along with other uh, mining opportunities in southern Arizona. Colt first offered Heinzelman $10,000 for a 25% share of the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company. And when Heinzelman presented a stock report showing that the company's mines had potential for producing silver valued at $1,400 per ton, Colt increased his offers to $10,000 in cash and $10,000 worth of firearms in exchange for $100,000 in company stock. The Cincinnati shareholders approved, and with Colt's help, the company intended to arm every one of its employees to secure the mine. Records show that the Colt Manufacturing Company sent about 600 pistols and 30 rifles to Tubac, along with enough interchangeable parts to meet any contingency. Firearms expert and historian Herbert House, who studied Colt's ledgers, called it the most extensive series of arms to be charged from Sam Colt's personal account. Upon receiving Colt's check on New Year's Day, 1858, Heinzelman announced, Our troubles are over. But lucky for you all, that is not true, or this would be a short story. <laughs> One Arizona historian has claimed that Colt, quote, left it up to Poston to keep the other investors happy, end quote. But my student Nick and I found that Colt's company correspondence in the Connecticut State Library suggests otherwise. Numerous letters expressing his avid interest and intimate involvement in Arizona affairs. While he could not be physically present, Colt sent his brother-in-law, Richard Jarvis, and later his personal assistant, Jesse D. Alden, to act as his representatives at the mines. Colt, meanwhile, focused his personal attention on the company, offering advice on its internal operations. Colt's ability to furnish equipment and supplies when they were needed provided the company with an aura of stability in a turbulent economic enterprise. Promoting mining and networking on behalf of the company were only some of the ways in which Colt helped maintain the flow of business. In February 1858, Colt accompanied Mallory and Heitzelman to lobby in Washington for the creation of that Arizona territory as a strategy for solving border problems. A couple of months later, at a board meeting in Cincinnati, Sonora Exploring and Mining Company partner Salon Lathrop urged his brother-in-law, Heinzelman, to request a leave of absence from the military to inspect and personally report on the company's Arizona operation. Colt enthusiastically supported the idea, believing that efficient management was the key to the mine's success. Colt personally approached former Secretary of War Jefferson Davis and current Secretary of War John Floyd to grant Heinzelman a 12-month leave from his military duties. Once clearing that bureaucratic hurdle, Colt funded Heinzelman's return to Arizona. Colt's confidence in the return on his investment is reflected in the fact that he essentially offered Heinzelman and the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company a blank check, pledging, quote, to make the necessary advances for you for that outfit. Colt's contribution, however, did not stop with money. Heinzelman would need protection on his overland journey, so at dinner in New York on the eve of his trip, Colt presented the major with a new revolver. From the beginning of his involvement with the mining company, Colt demanded constant updates about his investment and pushed hard in his correspondence and by leveraging his cash flow to make something happen at the mines. And although he was on the board of directors, Colt confided in a series of hastily written letters to Heinzelman that he felt like an outsider 
The major was the only person in the company that he knew personally. Please let me hear from you constantly, he implored Heinzelman, and report all of your company's movements. If any members of the company from mines or elsewhere or any personal friends of yours come to the east, give them introductions to me. I want to be fully posted concerning your movements as well as all mining matters. Colt would become very nervous hearing negative reports about stalled operations. He offered to send money for transportation and supplies. He provided three to five thousand dollars to hire a surveyor, carpenters, and a wheelwright in exchange for additional company stock. Kept kind of giving money, getting more stock in the company. By May, he pressured Heinzelman to step up his leadership and lagging mining operations. I can simply say that I now more than ever deem it important that you should take out with you a full force of practical men to aid you in developing that which under late management has been so long sleeping with great loss to the company, if your reports are true, Colt wrote. He even offered to pay for the new employees' travel to Arizona. Confident of the mine's ultimate success, Colt was prepared to sacrifice his stock in order to continue to build up operations in Arizona. What matters a few hundred shares of general stock of the company compared with the facilities thus furnished you at once to develop and work the mines? He further stressed the importance of at once possessing yourself of authority to control all these matters, otherwise your trip to the mines may prove fruitless. Our labor in Washington to get the future returns with headquarters, a report of failure in the working of the mines under your management would be a hard blow to us all. On the eve of the Civil War was a risky time to start a business venture. The national economy lagged as tensions rose between the North and the South, and in the Southwest, escalating tensions between the federal government and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, was threatening overland travel and economic stability in what was southern Utah. But Colt viewed that as impending conflict as a way to get the American military back out to help them in, in the Southwest. I shall return home to Hartford tomorrow and remain there for some time where I hope to hear from you and see you before you start your trip to the mines, Colt wrote Heinzelman on May 18, 1858. If there is any truth in the reports of peace with the Mormons, our interest and friendly relations with headquarters will be of great service to us in getting troops in full force stationed where they ought to be on the frontier of Sonora and among the Indians in our neighborhood. When Heinzelman arrived in Arizona that summer, he found the mine in serious debt, yielding far less ore than the company had anticipated. He blamed the labor force, and in particular the work ethic of the Mexican miners who casually walked off the job to visit their families or participated in fiestas. He complained that workers were stealing ore, going on strike, and complaining of inadequate food. To exert firmer control over mining operations, Heinzelman moved the company's offices from Tupac to Cerro, Colorado, and took personal charge. He paid off some workers and reduced the wages of others. Colt, meanwhile, sent out his trusted proxy, his brother-in-law Richard Jarvis, brother of Elizabeth. Jarvis left for Arizona with William Wrightson in the summer of 1858 via stagecoach through Texas. Jarvis was young and inexperienced, but his family was excited about the personal and financial opportunities Colt was affording him. If he stays in that country long enough, I have no doubt he will acquire influence, station, and fortune, Jarvis's father boasted. Colt employed Jarvis and Wrightson to stay in close communication with them as he traveled back and forth to D.C. to complete arms contracts. Having received word from Heitzelman about the problems with Indian attacks and thefts, Colt wanted all the miners and new settlers associated with the company to be well-armed in order to defend their properties. In response to reports of poor production, Colt reaffirmed his willingness to do anything that other members of the company and owners will consent to do for the mine's immediate relief. He also looked to the future, advising his fellow board members how and when to sell stock, either to increase the company's capital or simply to maintain its financial solvency. Whether through advice, paying transportation costs, providing up-to-date arms at the best possible rates, 
Colt almost single-handedly absorbed all the financial burdens and responsibilities of this mining company, all while maintaining an optimistic outlook of the company's ultimate prosperity. To leverage the company's limited capital, he frequently recommended trading stock for goods. He also provided his firearms over and over and over. He discounted the price of the weapons and paid for shipping costs. By the end of the year, Colt was anxious to minimize the debt. He especially wanted information that would help in his dealings with Sylvester Mowry, who was now pressuring him to invest in the Sapori Nash Mining Company, Mowry's company. Mowry accused Heinzelman of being discouraged and on the verge of abandoning the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company, and that started making Colt nervous as well. Meanwhile, Jarvis had left Tubac to look for more economical ways of transporting supplies via the port of Guaymas on Mexico's west coast. And an Hartford Current article underscores this by saying that Colt was buying up parts of California to provide a railroad terminal to continue that railroad through southern Arizona. Alarmed by Mowry's negative reports, Colt contacted the Wrightsons, those newspaper guys, and several others to encourage Heinzelman not to leave the mine without settling debts and leaving adequate supplies. Desperate to understand what was happening, he asked Heitzelman to remain as an intermediate manager, and he again advised trading stock. Colt confessed that, I am anxious to know all I can of the doings and prospects of the enterprise. I have thought for some time that if the company could raise enough upon the surplus stock or a portion of it, say several thousand shares, on the same terms as those last made for me, that the abundance of funding could probably be raised in several more amalgamations, works, and furnaces, and multiply the products of the mines. At the same time, he pleaded with Thomas Rison for news and information. I wish you would send me a copy, or rather half a dozen copies, of the published map of Arizona, he wrote. I am constantly applying for copies of this map to satisfy the curiosity of people around that, this country. Colt's request suggests that the arms manufacturer served as a kind of unofficial conduit for at least some of Hartford's and, and nor the Northeast investors in the company. Having pulled the company more or less out of debt, Heinzelman appointed a highly skilled engineer, Frederick Brunkow, to supervise mining operations, and he himself left Arizona in January of 1859. Jarvis returned as company superintendent and remained optimistic in his correspondence with his family about his own personal prospects, and Colt provided him with funds to invest in additional properties as he traveled. Stockholders, on the other hand, remained wary, and Colt, too, was getting discouraged. Without energy and capital, he called the mine a hole to bury money in. Tensions between Eastern and Midwestern board members grew worse. Frustrated and fearing that opportunities were being lost, Colt effectively seized control of the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company in April 1859, becoming finally its chief shareholder. On April 21, 1859, Tubac's weekly Arizonian newspaper recorded the election of new officers of the mining company at a meeting in Cincinnati. Sam Colt was named president, William Coleman vice president, and Richard Jarvis treasurer. Other members included B.H. Cheever of Washington, D.C., Charles Poston, Augustus Belknap of Brooklyn, New York, and Edgar Conkling and Henry Howe of Cincinnati, Ohio. After rejecting Connecticut as a suspiciously beneficial to Colt's own interests, the board decided to reincorporate in New York, where it could take advantage of the Empire State's more favorable stock laws. Family letters indicate that Colt had known of these decisions before arriving in Cincinnati, and Jarvis's family was thrilled with Richard's new position and additional income. Colt now enjoyed a board of directors made up of men he could trust to follow his vision. 
Feeling betrayed, Heinzelman bitterly handed over the reins of the mining company to Colt. Tired and furious with Colt's business tactics, he planned to return to military service in Texas. In his journal, Heinzelman recorded that Colt was, quote, a most unreasonable man and one I don't care to do business with, end quote. Free to operate his own instincts and his trusted associates and family in positions of influence, Colt looked to other Arizona ventures. He saw an immediate opportunity in supplying munitions and supplies to Fort Buchanan. In the spring of 1859, he encouraged Secretary of War to award Theodore W. Talaferro a franchise to supply all commissary and quartermaster's stores at stable prices. In return, Taliaferro asked for an introduction to Jarvis and promised to respond to any commands Colt would give him to make the mines run smoother. In the meantime, he requested one of your best Navy revolvers and, if you please, one of the repeating revolvers for use in southern Arizona's very rough country. Sam Colt considered his leadership essential to the health of the company. And on May 15th, he warned that the largest hurdle facing the company was the debt it had accumulated during a time of shrinking market capital. As a businessman, Colt regularly looked at world markets and foresaw the tight financial burden the Civil War would place on the company if it expanded on a global scale. Colt's visibility as a figure in Arizona increased once he took over the company as president. He particularly advertised his revolvers and promoted his brand name in the weekly Arizonian. On February of 1859, they explicitly promoted a separate territorial status for Arizona, and in one article, Colt's self-made man mystique described the manufacturing giant as having grown up, quote, so poor that he mortgaged the lathe and other machinery to the Ames Manufacturing Company to secure a debt. Colt is now generally believed to be the richest man in Connecticut and has the most complete armory for the manufacture of firearms. He is a very successful inventor. Unfortunately, none of these steps resolved the mining company's problems. In September of 1859, Colt's private secretary, Jesse D. Alden, who he had sent to Arizona to relieve Jarvis at Tubac, testified to the increasing dangers and risks in the region. Indians had raided the wagon station and ransacked the area, stealing muskets and supplies. I was obliged to leave my bags at one of the stations and arrived here with no other clothing than I had on my back, he informed his employer. The lost items included gifts from Elizabeth Colt to her brother, Richard, from whom Alden borrowed a clean suit. Jarvis's father reported the ordeal to his nephew and likely echoed the feelings of Colt and others. What with the Indians and Mexicans, they cannot count very confidently on their personal property. It is a shame that the government cares so little of its people and its possessions. Colt instructed Alden to write as often as possible and to wave pleasantries. My letters will probably mostly be about business, he warned, and Alden's should be the same. Over the summer of 1859 and into the spring of the following year, the mine suffered more Indian attacks, likely in response to increasing military expeditions out of Fort Buchanan. Colt shipped two steam engines and other machinery worth $27,000, hoping to keep the mines operating, but the mine's director quit after Apache's abducted settlers and stole cattle. The company's best engineer, Frederick Bunkow, also expressed a desire to resign. Even Alden, who remained in Arizona at least through 1860, threatened to leave unless, quote, greater inducements are offered to me, end quote. Colt maintained his faith that mining and American ingenuity held the keys to Arizona's promising future but it needed to become a separate territory. On January 9, 1860, Richard Jarvis wrote to Ohio Congressman Thomas Corwin on Colt's behalf to furnish information on Arizona's role in the fracturing nation. Jarvis explained that, quote, the future of at least the western portion of Arizona must depend on the development of its mineral wealth. Its agricultural resources and all that portion are now inhabited by the whites. They are small and can in all probability never be made sufficient for the maintenance of the large mining population, which it is fair to suppose will one day be found there. He emphasized that the regions most likely held a wealth of precious useful metals, including gold, silver, and copper, 
but because of the, quote, difficulties and dangers posed by the, quote, thieving and plundering bands of Apache, end quote, it had yet to be explored and developed. Jarvis blamed Congress for not properly asserting the authority of law over the area. So long as Southern Arizona was a place of refuge for the vicious and the outlawed of neighboring communities and the pistol was, quote, the law of the land, it would resist industrial development. Moreover, the region was isolated and freighting was expensive. Jarvis concluded by emphasizing that the physical differences between Arizona and New Mexico, claiming without evidence that while the former was thoroughly American, the latter was still allied with Mexico. Meanwhile, conditions of the mines further deteriorated. Engineer Brunkow reported that the Indians had launched yet another campaign to steal workhorses and oxen. Rifts between Eastern and Western investors expanded as the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company stockholders grew frustrated by constant requests for supplies and funds. In early 1860, Colt sent a letter to his lawyer, William McFarland, to get affairs in Tubac in order. Like Alden, McFarland hoped that by May, Colt could send new managers for the Arizona mines. The company's report responded on June 6 by dispatching Andrew Talgett, originally of Glastonbury, Connecticut, as director. But soon afterwards, workers rebelled and killed Brunkow, the company's best engineer, and two other employees. Workers insisted on higher wages due to the dangerous and volatile conditions, and the stress prompted a final rift between the eastern and western stockholders. Taking advantage, Post unleased the property, and with the new steam engine, tried to revive mining, but he eventually had to sell it all back to Colt. Several of the stockholders accused Colt of planning this takeover the whole time. Yet Colt remained disappointed in the whole enterprise. After all his efforts, Arizonans did not seem to be adopting his weapons. In a postscript of a letter to his friend William M.B. Hartley, who managed Colt's manufacturing company in New York, Colt lamented, I am noticing in the newspapers occasionally in complimentary reference to the Sharp and Burnside rifles in carbines, anecdotes of them, of their use upon grizzly bears, Indians, Mexicans, and so on. This is all wrong. It should be Colt's rifles, carbines, and so forth. When there is or can be made a good story of the use of Colt's revolving rifles, carbines, shotguns, or pistols for publication in Arizona, the opportunity should not be lost. He went on to request 100 copies of any such stories, promising to reward with a pistol or a rifle any editor who published a favorable article. He also asked Hartley to encourage stories describing any accidents caused by competitors' guns. <laughs> Just as the company was again becoming productive and profitable, the start of the Civil War in April 1861 removed the protection of federal troops from southern Arizona. As a consequence, Indian raiders and armed Mexicans crossed the border compelling Poston and other civilians to flee the territory. The death knell for the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company sounded on June 23, 1861, when the Army finally abandoned Fort Buchanan. Colt shut down operations in southern Arizona that summer, and he died of complications from gout on January 10, 1862, at the age of 47. Arizona's territorial status had become pawn in the war between the states. The Confederate Congress created Arizona Territory in January of 1862, and Confederate troops briefly occupied Tucson the following March. The U.S. Congress responded by creating Arizona Territory west of the 107th Meridian in February of 1863. Many historians have blamed the Civil War for interfering with the success of the mining companies, but these letters in the Connecticut State Library reveal that it was going to be a while to secure that area and make a successful enterprise. Permanent Anglo settlement supported by mining and agriculture did not take firm root in Arizona until late 1870s. Ultimately, the imposition of American laws and government, the arrival of the railroad, eroded the political and economic power of Arizona's Mexican community. 
Apaches whose activities the Americans blamed for chronic labor shortages in the southern Arizona mines, killed William Wrightson, the newspaper guy, in 1865 near Fort Buchanan. Subsequent military campaigns against the Apaches, many likely waged with Colt firearms, ended in disputed treaties and an extensive reservation system. New Mexican and American policies helped eventually overcome these obstacles. The profound changes to the economic and political landscape fostered American mining for the next century. As for the Sonora Exploring Mining Company, it ultimately failed to overcome the challenges of operating in a distant and unfamiliar land. Climate, isolation, Indian attacks, a national financial crisis, unskilled labor, inefficient management, Colt's own health, and a civil war proved insurmountable <laughs> obstacles. Nonetheless, Colt's efforts to turn a profit on his investment contributed to the political and economic infrastructure of what would eventually become Arizona Territory. And as an investor, financial leader, and advisor, Sam Colt contributed to Western expansion and the establishment of territorial government 2,600 miles from his Hartford home. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, write a review on iTunes. It will help us add to the growing audience for Grading the Nutmeg. We wish to thank Leah Glazer and the President's College at the University of Hartford. The President's College offers short, modestly priced, non-credit courses for adults taught by leading university professors and scholars. Find out more at hartford.edu slash President's College. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman and Patrick O'Sullivan. Sullivan. For more great stories about Connecticut history, including Connecticut Explored's spring issue about Connecticut in World War I, subscribe at ctexplored.org and purchase the winter 2016-2017 issue about Connecticut's in the American West. In our next episode, Stories from the Front, World War I soldiers from New Britain give us their fresh impressions of France and the experience of war.